may, may be seated. This time I invite you to join me in taking your personal copy of God's Word, our Pew Bible, and turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. We turn back to Nehemiah this morning, chapter 4. We'll look at the first 14 verses, so Nehemiah 4, uh, chapter, or chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Last Sunday was Reformation Sunday and Reformation Day, all fit together in one day, and uh, Thomas preached last Sunday in Philippians 2. So Thomas preached last Sunday and took five middle school girls to Bon Clark in this weekend, so I think he's earning his keep as an intern. Uh, but last Sunday he took us to Philippians 2, and to that scriptural call for all Christians that we are always be reforming. Reflecting that one of the, the mottos of the Reformation, Semper Reformanda, always reforming. And so this morning we come back to our series of Nehemiah by looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. If we do that, let me remind you, just a brief reminder of what we looked at a couple weeks back in chapter 3. We looked at this long list of people. Uh, who did what on what part of the wall? Uh, who did what work on what part of the wall? And so from that list, we, we saw a lesson in, in, in servant leadership, that the high priest himself, that the top of the hierarchy of priests, rolled up the sleeves of his robe and got out there and, and did work. He didn't just sit there and direct others. We saw that servant leadership that we've already seen in Nehemiah, but also points us to Jesus Christ, who tells us it is better to serve than to be served. And we looked at that list of names. And that list of names points us to the gospel. That God cared about each of his people, cared enough about them to name them. Because they were faithful to him and to his work. And that points us to the beauty of the gospel. That God knows each of his people individually. When we think of Christianity, it's not just some anonymous group of people that we happen to be a part of. No, God knows each one of us personally. So much so that with his own hand is written in the book of life our name. As we said, there are some who speculate that actually in the book of life is Jesus who had written our names in his own blood in that book. That makes the gospel very personal. That God knows you and loves you and cares for you. And so knowing this servant leadership and knowing the personal nature of the gospel points us to our call and responsibility to be involved in the work of the church. That to know Jesus know how much he loves us, and he came to serve us. We serve him by serving the church. That this right here, this, this place, this, this people, this, this time is meant to be a high priority for us. And we'll see part of that mirrored and reflected in our passage this morning as well. So that brings us to chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Uh, let me pray for us, and we'll come before God's word together. So Lord, we, we come to you now, and we are thankful for this Old Testament book. Uh, this book that we maybe sometimes skip over uh, because of these long lists like we read last week, and, and some of this narrative that just doesn't always seem exciting. But in this, we find the gospel. In this, we find your truth. In this, we are reminded that all of Scripture points to you. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that you would make known to us, you and your truth, in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. May I only speak your truth. May your people only hear your truth. And may you, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, be glorified in all that takes place 
here in this pulpit, and here in this sanctuary. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning of verse 1, and let's stand together now for the reading of God's word. Now when Sanballat heard <clears throat> that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. He said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to the plundered in a land, or give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. And when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed. We prayed to our God and said, A guard is a protection against them day and night. And Judah, it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we have come among them and killed them and stopped the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So, in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wives, for your homes. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever thought through what is your doctrine of Satan? It's kind of an odd question. We think through what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about the Bible, what we believe about salvation. Have you ever taken time to sit down and think through what it is you believe about Satan? Who he is and his ability. I think if we take a general look at Christianity today, we find that the majority of people sit in two faulty camps. One camp is we overstate what Satan is able to do. We think he's godlike. He's uh, he, he's he's omnipotent. He's he's just as powerful as God. He's he's omnipresent. He can be anywhere and everywhere like God is. So we think about Satan in this camp. We think about somebody who is godlike. He is the equal with God, and so it's kind of duking it out. This eternal boxing match between these two equals. And what we find in this view is that most everything bad then becomes something related to Satan. If he's all-powerful and he's all-present, then all, things, all bad things must be related to him. So no longer do we factor in our sins or our sinfulness. No longer do we factor in what Genesis 3 tells us, that we now live in a, in a fallen, broken world that has been cursed by sin. 
everything becomes Satan's fault. You can be a bad spouse and your spouse wants to divorce you and that's Satan's fault. Not because you've been a bad spouse. It's because of Satan. You can choose to not raise your children in the church and then when they grow up and rebel against the church and against the faith and against Christianity, it's Satan's fault. It's not because you have chosen to not raise your children to church. It has to be Satan's fault. In this camp, everything becomes Satan's fault. The other faulty camp is we understate the ability of Satan. We're too modern. We're too intelligent. We're too educated to believe in fairy tales such as Satan. He's more myth than truth. He's more clown than enemy. He's just something dumb that less educated, less intelligent people believe in. It's like Satan, or it's like as Paul never cautioned that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's not for us. That's for those uneducated people back 2,000 years ago. And so in this camp, Satan becomes the unseen and unbelieved enemy who's wrecking, wrecking havoc. And we'd stand there with our fingers in our ears and we hum our favorite tune and we ignore all that he's doing. It can never be him. But the Bible teaches that Satan is real. It's not a myth. He's not a fairy tale. But he's not God. He's a created being. God is not a created being. He's, he, is, he is eternal. Alpha and Omega. But Satan is a created being. He's a fallen angel. He is not God. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. He is a defeated foe. But he is a foe who is still at work. As we said before, we see Peter telling us that Satan is still prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour God's people. He can work in supernatural ways, but I think we most often find him working in rather regular, mundane, human ways. And so as we think about our doctrine of Satan, we don't need to be caught up in, in the exorcist, in demon possessions, in fantastical things such as that. And as we see from our passage this morning, God works, I'm sorry, Satan works in and through humans. So Nehemiah chapter 4, we return to Jerusalem. We return to the work being done to restore and rebuild the wall. And from our perspective, the, the perspective of God's people, this is a good work. Nehemiah is a good man. Nehemiah is a godly man. He's a faithful man. He's a praying man. And he's a good leader. And he has come to Jerusalem. He is leading God's people in this good work. In chapter 4, we're told there's opposition to this work. Very fevered, fervent opposition. And an opposition we will see has Satan behind it. So we begin this chapter with the perspective of the enemies of God. They don't like Nehemiah, they don't like God's people, and they really don't like what they're trying to accomplish. And so we're introduced, or we're reintroduced to a couple guys we first met back in chapter 2. But let's look at verses 1 through 3 again. Now when Sunbalat heard that, they were rebuild, that, they were, that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. 
And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, yes, what they're building, a fox who goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. We're introduced to these two guys back in chapter 2. Sambalat and Tobiah were told, were pleased with what Nehemiah wanted to do with the wall surrounding Jerusalem. Sambalat was a governor in the region. He was somebody important. He had power. And Tobiah was, the up, was in the upper circles of government as well. But now we find how far their displeasure goes. No longer are these two guys just kind of grumbling with their own little group. They're not just kind of complaining to each other. It's now become more active, it's more pointed, it's more deliberate. Sambalat has taken a leading role in this. His brothers are his allies. And Tobiah is a subordinate. The one who's going, he's going around just trying to echo the leader to make himself look good. But let's look again at what Sambalat is saying. And we can read in between the lines what he's trying to say. He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice and so on and so forth? We can hear the sarcasm dripping off of each syllable because what Sambalat's saying, what he's saying, start with this, what are these feeble Jews doing? He's saying, look, what a poor, incompetent group of people they really are. They're useless. What, what, what do you think they're going to do? They're absolutely useless over there. Will they restore their wall? They can't do this. Y'all, this, is, this task is beyond their ability. They're just a bunch of losers who don't know what they're doing. Will they sacrifice? So do they, they think if they go to worship and pray a few times, God's going to take care of this for them? They think their God is, is able to do this? They think their God cares about this? Will they finish up in a day? They have no idea how long this work will take them. They have no clue what they're doing. Would they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Look, they don't even have the right materials to get the job done. What they're doing is just laughable. Reading through this and understanding what he's saying is, is a lot like listening to modern political figures talking about their opposition, isn't it? But he's jeering. He's sarcastic. He is verbally tearing down the wall that's being rebuilt. Because Symbolic is firmly set against God's people. And therefore he's set against God and his work. Make no mistake about this. This isn't a good guy with a bad view. This is a bad guy with a bad view. He has set himself against God's people and therefore he has set himself against God and against God's work. And then we're introduced to, our, we're told about Tobiah. It's a little guy who's trying to impress Sunbonnet. Y'all remember those Looney Tunes cartoons with the, with the bulldog, Spike, Spike the bulldog, and Chester the little terrier, right? Spike was this burly uh, gray bulldog. He always had this scowl. He wore like a, a, a brown bowler hat. And Chester was this little Jack Russell terrier who was always hopping around him and always trying to impress Chester, or always trying to impress Spike. Uh, hey, Spike, what are we doing today? Hey, that's a great idea, Spike. Oh, Spike, what are we doing? Blah, 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 blah. That's what I imagine Tobiah with Sambala is in this passage. It's like that little dog jumping around the big one. Hey, Sambala, oh buddy, you're right, look at that wall. Man, even if a fox jumped on it, it's all going to come tumbling down. Isn't that great, Sambala? Don't you think that? Isn't that great? That we have this powerful figure and we have this almost pitiful figure. 
Yet they are together throwing out some very heated and direct words and accusations. They are firmly set against God's people and therefore set against God and God's work. And this makes them evil. Now this doesn't mean they're demonic or they're possessed. But scripture is very clear. Either you're with God or you're against God. Either you are for him or you're against him. Either you follow after him or you are against him. Either you are a Christian or you are evil. Doesn't make him demonic. Doesn't make him possessed. But death say they, they've chosen to rebel against God. And if you rebel against God, there's only, only one other person you can follow, and that is Satan. So we're listening in to the conversation of two evil men. But the problem is, this isn't a conversation contained between the two of them, but it's who else they're saying it to. Look back at verse 2. And he said, in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria... Symbolic has gathered people together. He has gathered together the allies. He has gathered together the army of Samaria. This has now become a militant discussion. Symbolic is talking to his allies and to the army of Samaria. He's the governor. He's a leader. He has gathered the troops to prepare them for what is in store. He's, in a sense, given them a militant pep talk. Y'all remember the opening scene from the movie Patton? It opens up with a stage and a huge American flag standing, uh, hung up on the wall. And here comes in General Patton dressed in his army regalia. And he gives this military pep talk to the Third Army. Here's who the enemy is. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what's going to happen. That's what's happening here. Symbolic has gathered the armies. He has gathered people together to go against God's people. This is no longer gossip. No longer God talk. This is the talk of an enemy of God who's riling up other enemies of God so they can go after the people of God. These people are firmly set against God's people. Therefore, they're set against God and God's work. And now they are moving towards military action. So Nehemiah gets wind of this. And what's his response? He prayed. And he got back to work. Verses 4 through 6. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger and the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall has, was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. This has become a familiar theme for Nehemiah. He prays. He gets news of something, and so he prays. We've seen this faithfulness. We've seen his godliness, and that he takes everything to God in prayer. He takes everything to God in prayer, and then he goes into action. So as we talked about before, we, we see this example of faith that prayer is meant to precede action, not the other way around. But we often get that wrong, don't we? We get it the other way around. We go with action and then we think about prayer. We see that something needs to be done, so we start doing it. And at some point down the line, we stop and go, oh, we probably should pray about that, shouldn't we? 
Then Nehemiah sets this example for us. No, you pray, and then you go into action. So even when he hears word uh, of the gathering army, when he hears of what Sambalat says, he doesn't put down a shovel and go grab a rifle. He doesn't put down the wheelbarrow and go out and grab a, a rocket launch or whatever. He puts down his tools, he gets on his knees, and he prays. Even when he sees evil gathering on the horizon like a storm and the bullseye is, is Nehemiah in Jerusalem, Nehemiah first prays. Driven by this desire to see the all work done for the glory of God, Nehemiah once again demonstrates his belief in the power of prayer. It's prayer that had brought him to Jerusalem in the first place. And now as he is facing the serious opposition, Nehemiah again goes in prayer to the Lord. And it leads to a prayer meeting at the wall. If you notice, it said other people prayed. So here's what happens. Word gets around. Word gets to Nehemiah. And he goes, I've got to pray. Word gets to other people. And they go, look at Nehemiah. He's praying about, we need to pray as well. So we see God's people facing evil, the opposition of evil. They don't go grab their Bibles and holy water. They don't go all over the uproar. They have a prayer meeting. And the prayer, the prayer, the, I'm sorry, the prayer is brief as to the point. And we're not even given an introduction. It doesn't say, and Nehemiah heard this, so he goes to the God of prayer. It, it goes, he just goes straight into prayer. Derek Kidner remarks on this in his commentary. This sudden prayer, quite unannounced, transports the reader back to the very moment as if this were an extract from the day's record simply copied as it stood. So we're given a snapshot. Nehemiah's laying down mortar, putting up a stone or a brick. Laying down more mortar, putting up another stone or a brick. And word comes to him, Nehemiah. Armies are gathered. Here's what Sambalat has said. And Nehemiah goes, oh my. Puts down his shovel, his trowel, gets down his knees, and he prays. And we're taken right there with them. And this isn't a flowery prayer. This isn't an extended devotion. This is an urgent prayer. It's an urgent prayer because the situation requires immediacy and focus. It's a, it's a prayer that God will come down, come down this very moment and demonstrate his sovereignty over the enemies of the Jews. And it's a very pointed prayer. And what Nehemiah prays is what is called an imprecatory prayer. An imprecatory prayer is a prayer that asks for God's righteous judgment to come and to come quickly. We find this in the book of Psalms. There are imprecatory psalms that are meant to be prayed for God's judgment to come and to come quickly. Now, in our current Christian culture, we're too nice to pray these prayers, aren't we? When was the last time you've gone to a you've come to a prayer meeting here at Bethel and somebody prayed, "Oh Lord, these are your enemies. Come down and destroy them right away." We don't pray like that. We'll pray for their salvation. We'll pray that Lord will will reach them, but we've never prayed for their judgment and for their destruction. When have you ever gone to a prayer meeting and heard somebody stand up and pray this? May his days be few. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children, children wander about and beg, seeking food 
for from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his father's children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out by the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sins of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may be cut off from the memory of them from the earth. Have you ever heard a prayer like that? That's Psalm 109. That didn't come from this past week's prayer meeting in Bethel. That's Psalm 109. That's a prayer from God and his word and his prayer book. And that is in essence what Nehemiah is praying against Sanballat and Tobiah and the army of Samaria. Lord, these are your enemies. Bring your righteous judgment and bring it quickly because they are opposing you through opposing us. And that's the reason for these prayers, for God to bring his righteous righteous judgment on those who oppose his people and his work. How do we understand these prayers? How do do we engage with these sort of prayers? Well, J.I. Packer says it this way. The key principle here is stated in Psalm 139. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. The nearer we come to the state of mind, which is a spinoff from the desire that God's will be done, his kingdom come, his name be hallowed and glorified, the less problem we shall have with vengeance prayers. And what we have to keep in mind, these prayers are not a prayer for personal vengeance. It's a prayer for God to do something. This isn't prayers for us to pray when something bad happens to us or, 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 or it's not a prayer for us to, for something bad to happen to someone we don't like we don't pray this because somebody has gossiped about us we don't pray this because they did something we don't like this is a prayer about a person or persons who are enemies of God who are deliberately wrecking havoc against God's people who are trying to stop God's work and that's what's happening here in this passage Sambalat and Tobiah have gathered together the army of Samaria and their allies, and they are purposely going out to stop the work of God. Nehemiah has no access to the military, but he has access to God. So he goes to God in prayer, and he asks for God to deal with them. And to think that this is just an Old Testament thing, let's remember in the book of Revelation, the prayers of the martyred saints who says, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is an Old Testament wrath, fire and brimstone. This is being prayed in heaven right now. So what do we do? Do we change our prayer life? We no longer stop we, we stop praying for people's conversion and we start praying for their destruction now. <laughs> Lord, I met an unbeliever today. He hates you. Will you please destroy him by next Wednesday? No, we still pray for their conversion. We pray for their conversion because it's not at odds with the desire for justice. And this is the tension of Scripture salvation and judgment. We pray for our salvation. But the Lord wills that they not be saved and they continue on their path 
of going against God and his people, then we pray for his judgment. God has told us so. And we see this in Nehemiah's prayer as well. But we need to, we need to understand this. We need to remember that with Nehemiah's prayer is that Satan is behind his opposition. These people are evil. Again, that doesn't mean they're demonically possessed. It doesn't mean they're demonically oppressed. It doesn't mean they're demons. But they have chosen to not follow God, and therefore they have chosen to follow after Satan. And ultimately, we know, and as we think through our doctrine of Satan, we know the goal of Satan. Satan does not want to see God's work done. He doesn't want to see here with Nehemiah. He doesn't want to see the wall built. He doesn't want to see God's people thriving. He doesn't want to see God's people come back together in Jerusalem to gather together as a worshiping community of the one true God. He does not want that. So here's Sambalat, Tobiah, and the army of Samaria and the allies. Satan is firmly set against God's people and against God's work. So part of praying the sort of prayer we find in Nehemiah is that we are praying against the work of Satan. The work that this work that, that is firmly set against us, God's this work that is set against us is God's people and against God's work that God has called us to perform, participate in. And make no mistake, Satan is still an enemy. He's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. He's not just that little red guy on cans of tuna. He is still prowling around like a roaring lion. We need to be praying against Satan and his work. It just takes a, a glance around at our time and culture to see that Satan is very much at work. It doesn't take a rocket scientist. It doesn't take a, a PhD theologian to see the work of Satan. We see it all around us. He despises God. He despises us. And he will do everything in his power to work against us. Think about how the structure of the family has been attacked. Who do you think is behind that? Think about the, the, the way we're having discussions of, about, about gender and sexuality. Who do you think is behind, behind those sort of conversations? And now the church is being targeted. Who do you think is behind that? It's not Jesus. Satan is at work. And it is our responsibility to be praying against them. But I think it's easy for us as Christians to point out there. Satan is at work out there. Is Satan at work in here? In these pews? With us? I think we have to look at how Satan works against our commitment to Christ and to his church. And this goes back to what we talked about in chapter 3. That in servant leadership and knowing the personal nature of the gospel calls us to follow our servant leaders, to be servant leaders, to be servants to God's church. Because every Sunday, you and I have a decision to make. And that decision is, will my family and I go to church or will we not? Will my family and I go to church or is there something else we're going to choose to do on that day? 
Look, there are Sundays when we are sick. There are Sundays when we are providentially hindered. There, there, we may work a job that is, need, that is needed to be done on a Sunday. But there are times where this doesn't fit us. And we have a decision to make. Joshua says, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my household, do we go to church or do we not? It's a matter of choosing Christ as church or something else. Because we can know this for sure. Every Sunday morning, Satan has one goal for you and me, and that is not to go to church. Providentially, as I wrote this sermon on Friday, I was looking at Twitter this morning, and somebody who's far smarter than me said almost the exact same thing. I'm like, okay, if he said it, I feel pretty good about it. But we know this for sure. Every Sunday, uh, Satan does not want us here. He doesn't want us to hear scripture. He doesn't want us to sing scripture. He doesn't want us to pray scripture. He doesn't want us to hear about Jesus Christ. He doesn't want us to be renewed through fellowship with other Christians. Every Sunday morning, he has one goal for us, and it's not to be here. And he will do all that he can to make sure we make the choice of being somewhere else. And again, there are Sundays we are sick. There are Sundays we, we are just providentially hindered. And again, some of us have jobs that require us to not be here on Sundays. But for the rest of us, we have to make the choice of what we do. And sometimes we make the choice of doing something else, don't we? And then we're tempted to, to say, well, well, we'll do a devotion if we go on vacation or if we're somewhere else or we've got, we've got something else going on, it's okay. We, we'll have a devotion beforehand. In a couple of weeks is Thanksgiving. And when you think of a Thanksgiving meal, what do you think of? We think of a feast, right? We want, we want to see the table groaning underneath all the food on there. Turkey, ham, Mac and cheese, stuffing, greens, stomach grumbling. We want to see a feast on that table. When we think of Thanksgiving Day, we don't think of a glass of water and a package of saltines. And every Lord's Day, we are called to come and feast on the means of grace. That this sanctuary is literally groaning underneath the feast of feasting upon God's word on prayer, the sacraments, and on fellowship. And when we consistently make that choice to not come to this feast, we have a glass of water and we have a saltine. And how long can that nourish you for? Not very long. Satan wants to see malnourished Christians all over the place. For us to convince ourselves that a glass of water and a package of saltines is all we need. When right here is everything our hearts can desire. We have to pray against the work of Satan. He doesn't always work in supernatural ways. 
There's not a demon standing at your front door to keep you from going to church on Sunday morning. But boy, he sure can work in human ways, can't he? Because what did Nehemiah do? He prayed and he went back to doing the Lord's work. And that's our calling, isn't it? We pray. And we pray against Satan's work. And then we go back to the Lord's work. We pray. And then we get up and we go to church. We pray against Satan and we follow after Christ. That is our calling in life. Let us pray.